0: I'm Linda Van Valkenberg, and
1: I'm Ron Gore, and, and you're listen listening to, to the CoParent Parent Academy, Academy podcast. podcast. All right, Linda, we are doing our very first ever uh, Streamyard recording. And to help people understand what we're trying to figure out, we can hear ourselves. There's a bit of an echo because of the way the headset is and the way we're talking. So we're trying to get used to it. So and maybe it is a little bit awkward. to. Get
0: used to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're going to do our best. And, and this is so that we can have recordings in two different locations. And this is a test run, and hopefully it goes well. All right. So today we're going to start our season on parental alienation and parental alienation is pretty controversial. Uh, It's a concept that has existed under that name since the 80s. Uh, It's come under pretty fierce attack. Uh, Recently, it has come into more favor and there's been a lot of uh, research done recently about it. So in this episode we're going to start off with the history of parental alienation. And before we're done with the season, we will have gone into every facet, um, including the controversy, what people don't like about it, and just how it's supposed to work. But first, let's start off with a definition. The American Psychological Association has a definition of parental alienation syndrome. And that definition is a child's experience of being manipulated by one parent to turn against the other, the targeted parent and resist contact with him or her. Now, this is something that can most typically happen in high conflict divorces, but alienation can occur at any time, even, in, even with in parents families. that are
0: still married.
1: Yeah, exactly. So in this session, We're going to go into the history of parental alienation. And I was kind of surprised, Linda, to see that it goes back farther than just the 1980s. Me too. So when you were in school, were you learning about parental alienation?
0: Yes. When I was in my master's program, I definitely heard about Richard Gardner because that was from 83 to 86. So it was just a brand new thing.
1: Mm, right, because he came out with his concept, his term of parental alienation in 1985. Right. I saw some materials from a uh, Dr. Burnett, um, who is a professor of, in the Department of Psychiatry at Vanderbilt. And he was talking about the fact that this concept of what we refer to now as parental alienation goes back to 1943 at least. And he was pointing to a book by a psychiatrist named David Levy. And that book was called Maternal Overprotection. And he cited a quote from it. And that quote was, the fathers adjusted with little or ineffective protest to the mother-child monopoly. Mm -hmm. To these facts must be added the derogatory attitude of the child towards the father which is in several instances fostered by the mother, thereby reducing the paternal influence to the lowest degree. So that is a version of parental alienation. And the focus there is on the maternal. And that was one of the big things that people didn't like about Gardner is that it seemed to be misogynistic.
0: That is true. And then in the 60s, Dr. Murray Bowen introduce the theory of triangulation and that's something that i still use sometimes with the children these days to show them that uh the model where you you know draw a, a triangle and then the child's at the top and the parents at the bottom and i and i put a little squiggle on the line between the parents and show them that you know there's There's not great communication there anymore, so you don't have to go through mom to get to dad or through dad to get to mom. You can just have a direct line between each of your parents.
1: Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. And in this way, he was talking about dysfunctional triangulation. So he was talking about the two parents, like you said, are dysfunctional in their communication with each other. And instead of communicating with just each other, they're dragging the kid into it. Right. And here he talks about a risk of triangulation being that a child becomes enmeshed with the parent who has improperly aligned with the child. And so he would talk about a a parent, whether it's the mother or the father, having what he called a cross-generational coalition. Hmm. So, the parent and the child meshing together to align against the other parent, which is not which a recipe sounds, for good parenting.
0: Which still sounds a lot like what we can hear today.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we see that all the time. And so, in the 1970s, there was uh, an individual named Salvador Mnuchin. And he talked about the same kind of cross-generational generation, cross coalition. And he was talking about uh, what he referred to as a rigid triangle or a perverse triangle, which is the same thing as this triangulation. He right. also referred to it as pathological triangle. And this is kind of interesting. He, he referred to it as a covert alliance between the parent and child against the other parent. So bring, making that kid a tool in the parental mm-hmm. conflict. And then that gets us up to the 80s when you were being uh, taught about Mr. Gardner. Right. So when you first learned about this, uh, how was it being taught? Was it like, hey, here's this brand new theory that's coming out of the blue? Or was it, hey, here's this uh, controversial idea? What were they doing?
0: Controversial idea. Yeah. And I had been a teacher and briefly a school counselor, was Was currently a school counselor. But I didn't do family systems because I wasn't doing therapy with parents and children. Mm-hmm. And I definitely didn't do anything with court at that point. So I didn't realize there was any kind of resistance or refusal of a child to go with a parent. And so I I didn't understand it, really. I, I didn't have any basis in my experience to associate the theory with it.
1: Once you got the education and you got into the court system, did you start to see something that seemed like what Gardner was talking about?
0: I sure did. And then, you know, throughout the years, it seems like it's been something that is always assumed is happening in a case. But ironically, in many cases, the father's attorney might think it was happening to him, and the mother's attorney might (laughs) think it was happening to her. and. It was just used as a weapon so many times.
1: Right. So when you say it was assumed, you're not saying that you assumed it or the court assumed it. Each party assumed the other was doing it to them. Right. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, we do see that every time a parent has a conversation with a child and, and you find out about it later. The thought is, what inappropriate thing was said? Right. You know, what tone of voice was used. A parent can say the exact right thing, but have, you know, that look in their eye or that tone of their voice. Right. And it just transforms it. All right. So then in the 1990s, there was a book by a man called Stanley Clawar and a person named Bryn Rivlin called Children Held Hostage. And this was actually an American Bar Association book. It was uh, sold by the ABA. And there they talk about programming and brainwashing. I'd never the context heard of this of, book. Oh, really? Yeah, I hadn't either. Yeah. So programming was defined in their book as the formulation of a set or sets of directions based on a specific or general belief system targeted toward another in order to obtain some desired end or goal. So it seems like a very lawyerly thing to say, like unnecessarily <laughs> wordy. <laughs> and then for brainwashing, they define it as selection and application of particular techniques, procedures, and methods employed as a basis for inculcating the program. Again, unnecessary.
0: I'm glad you said that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. So basically, they're saying that one parent has this program that they're looking to get in place to hurt the other parent and alienate them. And then they brainwash the kid into participating in their program. That's how I take that. Right. Is that what you saw? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't doubt that there's some programming and brainwashing. And as we get into a later episode in this season, and we talk about some of the behaviors that the alienating parent will engage in, we'll also talk about some studies they have about uh, you know the ability to implant false memories, for example. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you know some conspiratorial tin hat thing, but it's super easy. To make a kid believe that they experienced something that they never experienced. Right. So that's a real concern, especially when we're relying on kids to be accurate reporters Mm -hmm. with very little evidence uh, that they can be.
0: Right. I've even had children when a father will show a multitude of pictures of various Trips they took as a family and as proof that he was a part of their lives, you know, and that they do have positive memories with each other. And the the children will look at it and go, see, you're not in a single picture. You weren't there. And he's like, who do you think took the pictures?
1: Right. Exactly. And that kid's probably been told that your dad never went on trips with us.
0: Or just was never there, period.
1: Right. And then, in keeping up with the history, moving to 1996, there is a book called The Custody Evaluation Handbook by Dr. Barry Brooklyn. And he's got a very wonkish acronym that's kind of mm-hmm. talk about the same thing. He talks about NBOAIs, not based on actual interaction. So basically, the child is being uh, induced to have these false memories or these false beliefs um, in order to alienate the other parent. There kind of reminds me of that song. Um, I think it's from South Pacific. Did you ever see South Pacific? <laughs> yes. And there's that song, You Have to Be Taught to Hate and Ooh. Fear yeah so it's kind of like that these kids have to be taught to hate or fear the other parent and so i think that's what brooklyn's talking about
0: and not based on the actual interaction that the child has had with the parent
1: right exactly yep and then you know there's some other books that have come out since then and uh one book that i think or one paper rather was a focus on the, quote, alienated child. And this was a paper by John Kelly and Janet Johnson. And they termed it a reformulation of parental alienation. And what did you think about that, Linda?
0: Yeah, I think it. they were trying maybe to put a positive spin on something again. Um, their possession was that a lot of separations involve alienating behaviors, but the child doesn't actually become alienated. So either those actions were not sufficient or the child had their own mind about it and didn't fall for it.
1: Right. So they were trying to say, I think that, you know, there's this idea that if a parent is going to be alienating a child, then game over. The kid's alienated. Right. But it's not the case. Some kids just persevere. Or maybe the bond with their parent was so strong that it couldn't be attacked. Right. But they were pointing out that you can't just focus on the alienating behaviors of the parent. You have to focus on what role the child plays. Right. Yeah. And so they're a little bit critical of... Parental alienation, as Gardner was talking about it, um, and and this is part of the critique that has been made against parental alienation syndrome as evidence used in courts
0: right.
1: that it's unverifiable, that it you can't reproduce it, and so it doesn't meet the legal standard to have a theory applied as expert evidence in a family law case. Right. And that's one of the ways I think that Gardner or the people who were supporting Gardner in the 80s, uh, they kind of went wrong. Right. They, they took a brand new concept that did not have a lot of empirical research behind it. And they tried to throw it into the legal system and to give it more weight than it was due at the time because it needed to ripen. You know, it needed to be tested and critiqued. And so I think they jumped out of the gate too quick. And it led to them, or to that concept, uh, being kind of out in the wilderness for 10 or 15 or 20 years.
0: I don't think it ever really went away. It just had to ripen. It it just really needed to be seen and experienced by more and more professionals, I think, through the years.
1: Right. And so recently, I saw a chart. and I can't remember where it was. But it was plotting the number of papers, academic articles, that were being written about parental alienation. And there was a bit of a blip, you know, in the 80s. And then it was dead. And then the last several years... There's a ton. I mean, I found multiple papers that have been issued in the last two or three years. I mean, several. So there's a lot of research going into it now. And there's, um, I think, a renewed academic vigor regarding it. You know, these social sciences always have a bit of a lack of um, the mystique of a scientific paper. You know, it's not a hard science. It's not chemistry or physics or there's always that tinge of a bit of voodoo about it and so if you're going to rely on it in the legal system you got to make it as stringent as you can right in 2015 then there's a, a practitioner named craig childers and he focused on an attachment model of parental alienation he was focusing on the disorder that the parent suffers from sort of uh, maybe a narcissistic parent or someone with a borderline personality disorder. And they're triggered by the dissolution of the relationship. Right. And it makes them act out based on the disorder that they have. And he was focusing more on parental alienation being an expression of the parent's disorder than just on this um, scheme that a parent has to gain advantage that's independent of some sort of psychological disorder.
0: Yes, and I think many times this is why the alienating parent may seem obvious to some professionals, but really not realize it themselves you know Hmm. they're they're very convincing and they're very strong about what they believe is happening and how they believe they're protecting their child yeah but it is that underlying personality disorder that's driving it
1: yeah and you almost think you've got to have something wrong with you to be doing this because I mean, it's it's such a harmful thing to right. not only the other parent but the child as well, yeah. and we're going to get into both of those the the uh, psychological emotional effects, the developmental effects on right. the child, the devastating effects on the parent, um, and it's really not even good for them long term. You know, for the alienating parent, it's almost always going to boomerang eventually.
0: And it's interesting because I'm sure you've heard almost any case we've worked over the years, one parent is calling the other one a narcissist and that parent's calling the other one borderline or bipolar.
1: Right. Right. And it's almost always in the direction of the man is the narcissist and the woman is bipolar or borderline personality disorder. It's like they're all reading from the same handbook. Right. And they probably are. They're probably all going to the same YouTube channel.
0: Uh-huh. And then what are both of the parents is calling the other one manipulative, right. and which does come with those diagnoses. And then the child is repeating that word to any of the professionals that are listening.
1: Even if they're too young to have any idea what it means.
0: Especially when.
1: Especially when. Right, exactly. Well, that's sort of a a brief history of parental alienation syndrome. And like I said, there's been a lot of research that's been done in recent years. And as we get into the future episodes of this series, we're going to be talking about that research. Um, We'll point out some of the more influential uh, authors who've been contributing to the research in the last 10, 15 years. And we're going to dig into several things. Uh, Next, we're going to talk about the four factors that are used to establish parental alienation. Then in subsequent episodes, we're going to talk about the eight behaviors that children who've been alienated exhibit. We're going to talk about the 17 main ways in which parents attempt to alienate. So the 17 17. main alienating. (laughs) Yeah. 17.
0: That's a lot.
1: Main alienating behaviors. Yeah. Then we're going to get into the negative effects on the kids and the parents. And we're going to talk about what a treatment plan looks like. How do you help a, a child who's been alienated? How do you help the parent who is the target? And how do you help the alienating parent? And then I think we'll wind up this season by talking about uh, a, a new development, I think, in this literature, which is really starting to focus on parental alienation as a form of domestic abuse. And I think this is really where the future of parental alienation is headed because you can really map on to the Duluth power and control wheel, some of these alienating behaviors and it just yeah. fits when you throw stop up, thinking about, up. yeah. When you stop thinking about domestic violence as just physical and you start thinking about it as power and control dynamics, there's no more powerful control than being able Mm -hmm. to keep someone's child from them. And so I think that's where this is headed. Yes. All right, quite a season we have.
0: Many layers.
1: Oh, yeah, this is, I think it's going to be six or seven episodes. And uh, hopefully this technology is working. We're going to try to streamline it and make it work even better. And uh, we will talk to you, everybody, soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to leave questions, comments, or concerns, please email podcast at coparentacademy.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.